Today, Jesus, in our passage, peels back the heavenly curtain and reveals the spiritual war that is occurring. We often seek to interpret interpret what we see through the world's lenses. Uh, everything is, we try to understand what's going on. We often use the world's lenses to interpret what we see, either on the news or on social media or whatever. We're often drawn into the trap of trying to interpret things through worldly glasses. But our Savior today opens up or peels back the curtain of the spiritual war that's happening and shows us and reveals a real truth that is happening, a a real reality of what's behind all the evil in this world. The world distorts our understanding of everything that is going on. However, However, when we really get who is the Lord... And who is the enemy? We are awakened to the reality of whose world we live in. And who we should be honoring and serving. We must embrace this special revelation found in the word of God. Of the one true God and Savior. When we get a glimpse of the spiritual battle. We must, as Joshua said, choose this day whom we will serve. Are we going to be with the Lord? Or are we going to be with the enemies of the Lord? The fact is, everyone is on one side or the other in this giant spiritual war. There is no middle ground. Every person in this room is either with the Lord or against the Lord. There is no middle ground. The news doesn't show this. The social media does not show this. It almost kind of pits different people against different people all the time. But the Lord Jesus reveals that there really is only two camps. The key verse in our passage is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Look at it. In Matthew 12, 30, Jesus states, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. This is a very important verse. Jesus has come to a breaking point in his ministry. He has done numerous miracles. He has taught amazing sermons. He has sent his disciples out explaining that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He revealed that he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament of the first coming. Jesus has spoken as one having authority at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has healed as only the Sovereign could heal. Jesus has shown He is Lord of the spiritual realm. But the Pharisees were not embracing Jesus. The religious establishment was not embracing Jesus. Most of the Jewish people, were not embracing their Messiah. Jesus also was turning their religious traditions upside down, wasn't he? He was explaining their misuse of the law for the purpose of self-exaltation was evil and twisted 
they were all about self-righteousness. And he was saying, nope, that's wrong. That's wrong. Your interpretation of the law is wrong, and you're using the law wrong. And the religious leaders had had enough. He was at his breaking point. Look at verse 14, 12, 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. So the breaking point had happened. The Jewish leaders, the religious leaders had said, we want him dead. We want him gone. This was a monumental point in Jesus' ministry. He had been revealed to be the incarnate Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the promised coming one, Yahweh's servant. But the religious elites didn't want him and wouldn't submit to him. They wanted a Messiah that was like them, who would be for their causes of self-righteousness. Not a Messiah that was gentle and humble and a servant and required the same out of his followers. That's what Jesus talks about. Remember, last week we talked about that this is who Jesus is. He's a gentle and humble servant. They didn't want that. Today, we come to the straw that broke the camel's back. Israel's religious leaders officially reject their Messiah and actually attribute his miracles and his work to the power of Satan. This appears to be a turning point in Jesus' ministry. You will see that from now on what he will begin to do is after he gives his condemnation and explains their judgment to come, he then speaks in parables and talks in parables. I believe using the parables is, and you'll see it as we go along, is a judgment on the religious elites. So there's a turning point that's happened. He's been offered, the king's been offered, and they say, nope, we don't want you, we don't like your ways, we want a self-righteous Messiah, one that helps us to remain in our self-righteousness. But Matthew who's writing this, knows full well who Jesus is, and he revealed it, right? As mentioned, Matthew states emphatically, Jesus fulfills, remember, all that Isaiah's prophecy was about in Isaiah 42, 1-4. That's what our passage was last week. When we look, you look in 18-21, to 21, it's Isaiah 42, 1-4. Saying, in effect, Jesus was revealed to be the servant of Yahweh, who is gentle and kind and humble and the way of righteousness, even for the Gentile. Remember? Boy, that wouldn't be pretty news for them, would it? Justice was found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Being declared right was only found by humbly embracing Jesus. The very next scene, Jesus does yet another great miracle in our passage today. He does another great miracle confirming his identity as the Son of David. The Messiah. That's verse 22. But the Pharisees weren't having it, were they? They turned to a blasphemous accusation, as we'll see. This becomes the nail in the coffin for the hard-hearted Jewish leaders. Now, I want you to listen to me closely. There's a tremendous warning tucked into this passage. 
a warning for all of us. Be careful with what the Spirit of God reveals about Jesus Christ. I personally don't believe, and I know when y'all read, how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, you can just think this in your heart, I'm trying to get away from the raising the hand thing. How many of you in your heart have questioned, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit, so therefore I can't be forgiven? I guarantee you there's some of us in the room, did I do that? You come to a passage like this and say, well, then maybe I'm not really forgiven. Maybe I'm just deceived. Or you've asked that question. I personally don't believe people are able to do this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today. (gasps) You're kidding. Well, the passage doesn't appear to be for us in that sense. Now, let me explain. As we go along, you'll see it. I believe this is a sin that is specific to the people who were rejecting Jesus' miracles being done by the Holy Spirit at that time. That the Spirit, the triune God, was working in the Son of God to accomplish that right then, and those people at that time were doing what? Rejecting the Spirit's work within the Messiah. But the warning of Hebrews 6 is similar. It's the idea that if someone comes into an up-close look at the person and work of Jesus, they get a revelation of who Jesus is, and they see it in the bride of Christ and how He's working within the church, and they are in the church hearing the gospel, hearing this revelation that comes from the Spirit of God, that was given in the, whole, in the Word of God, that reveals the same truth of who Jesus is. The Spirit's great work of building the church They see the revelation of God and the Word of God and the Bride of Christ. And they appear to associate with that truth, but then they turn away and apostatize. And they say, nope, I don't want that anymore. Matter of fact, that's a lie. And they begin to teach against it, which is what I think Hebrews 6 is talking about. It's very similar to the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. However, it is not the exact same thing. Do you understand? So there is a warning. The warning is this. Take serious the revelation that God has given you. It's actually the same warning that we've already seen back in chapter 11 of Matthew. That same warning that said to those people that that they had seen the miracles of Jesus. They had gotten close. They had seen it. And he says, the judgment will be greater for you than Sodom, remember? Than you, Chorazine. And so the warning is for everybody in this sanctuary. And it is this. You hear the word of God. You understand the truth. Be careful that your heart's right with the Lord and that you have truly repented and trusted in Him. Don't go away. The message is very similar, isn't it? The main point is be careful what we do with the glimpse of God's glory. No, you cannot lose your salvation. But, but, if you've heard it and you've heard it and you've heard it and you've never repented, but you like the benefit of being in the church, and then one day you fall away, 
and judgment is coming. If you are convicted by your sins, don't harden your heart today and turn away from Him. Turn to Him because He is the only way to Christ or to God is through Christ, right? Look how this works out in the Pharisees who falsely confronted Jesus in 22 to 24. Again, in 22, it states, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Notice how it unfolds. First, Jesus reveals his identity again, his identity by doing a great miracle in verse 22. Then the crowd contemplates the true identity of Jesus. They they get it to a degree. They start to understand it. Third, the Pharisees blaspheme the work of God. Let's walk through this real quickly. Jesus reveals his identity by doing a miracle. Notice this was no small miracle. Jesus shows he's Lord over the spiritual realm, doesn't he? It's a demon-possessed man. But Jesus also shows he's Lord over the physical realm because it was most likely a deaf and blind man. You say, well, where does it say deaf? It doesn't. It says mute. Well, mute or somebody unable to speak was often associated with not being able to hear. And we know this from engaging some of our deaf in our congregation. They can't speak often. Hearing is associated with what we speak. So Jesus heals this man and casts out the demon. This was an impossible circumstance for the man, but Jesus heals him. No doctor could heal this way. It took the Lord God himself incarnate to deliver him. He needed physical and spiritual healing, and Jesus healed him. There's not a lot of details of how it happened. It just says he did it. What does this do? It's evidence that Jesus is exactly what the Scriptures were saying. He's the Messiah. Jesus was the chosen one. Jesus was the Son of God. He is, 1218, the Spirit of Yahweh was upon him. The Spirit of God was working. Now, just a side note here. You know, I've grappled with this and grappled with this. What part of the Son of God was doing miracles and what part of the Holy Spirit was doing miracles and what part of the Father was doing miracles? You ready? Here's my conclusion. Yes. I'm sorry. I don't know what else to do with it. The triune God was working in the Son of God. Okay? Is everybody okay with that? I think we just got to leave it there. Can we parse the the Son and how the Spirit was working and what part of it was the all-powerful Son of God that was doing it? When was He knowing and when was... I I can't. We just know that they always worked in harmony and they always have worked in harmony and they always worked. And the Spirit of God was working in the Son of God. The evidence of Jesus' identity here was overwhelming, wasn't it? Jesus was... Exactly who he said he was and who the prophet Isaiah had said he was. Notice the obvious response. The crowd contemplated the true identity of Jesus. It says in verse 23, All the crowds 
were amazed. And we're saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? The crowd was astonished. They were in awe of what Jesus had done. This was shocking. The verb used here implies an ongoing awe of the events. The crowd was just like, wow. These people were marveling over what Jesus had done. They were thinking things like this. No way. This is amazing. This guy was demon-possessed. He was blind. He was deaf. And Jesus healed him immediately. They were like, wow, this is amazing. Whoa. Maybe some were even saying, whoa, God's in our midst. This is astonishing. This is amazing. But their response didn't mean they believed. Now, I want you to take note of this. This is very important. It's important to note that there is doubt in the way that they word the question. The questions, the questioners have some doubt as they ask this question. I would probably translate this, perhaps this is the Son of God? Question mark. Not, this is Him. Is, is it, is it, maybe this is the Son of God? They were looking at all the evidence. It was obvious of who He was. but not completely convinced. Perhaps this is the Son of God. This miracle looks like the Messiah, what He would do. This is what Christ was prophesied to do. Is He the one? We see here the crowd gets very close to identifying who Jesus is properly. They get right up to the edge. They knew He was probably the one. But the quick, bigger question was, would they repent and believe in him? Would they follow him? Would they embrace him? Would they take up his yoke and learn from him? They had the truth. The Spirit and the Father had put their seal of approval. They had revealed Jesus is the one by their own supernatural powers. And God revealed the Messiah to his people. But would they choose him or would they follow their sinful religious leaders? Which is where the false teacher jumps in the saying, isn't this the way the world is? How many of you have ever done a witnessing experience and you're, you're sharing the glories of Christ and then a phone rings or something happens at that very moment and it's like everything you're talking with that person, it just goes out the window and you're like, uh, come back. You're right there, right on the edge. This is exactly what happens here. Notice the Pharisees blaspheme the work of God. You know who I think really got it? I want you to listen closely. I think the Pharisees got it. (laughs) I think the Pharisees knew it. I think the Pharisees knew he was the all-powerful, mighty God. I think they knew it. They were at the end of themselves and they were not going to bow the knee to him. That's a fact. They wanted to destroy him. It was set in their hearts. So what do they do? 
they blaspheme the work of God in the Son of God. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Notice 24, it says, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. What is this? I believe this is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which he refers to in just a little bit. This is them saying that Jesus is doing this by the Spirit, the power of Satan. Beelzebul being another title that had been associated with Satan. You can see the desperation in the Pharisees, right? The crowd was close to believing in Jesus. They were affirming Jesus' identity as the Son of Man. The miracle was undeniable. No one could deny that some miraculous thing had happened. And the crowd was asking for spiritual wisdom. Could this be the Messiah? And what do they do? They stand up and say, nope, he's doing it because of Satan. Why? Why? This is the lost, self-righteous heart on display. It will not bow the knee and acknowledge their sin and need of a Savior. They were not interested in repenting and believing in Jesus. They were not interested in laying aside their works righteousness system. They did not want a humble, gentle Savior. They wanted a self-promoting, ruthless king who would destroy their pagan enemies and not graciously forgive them. They wanted power and authority not to surrender to Jesus. So they come up with this answer. And I don't know about you, but when I look at this answer and this this comment, I'm still baffled by the insanity of it. Isn't it insane? Jesus shows the logical fallacy of it. Jesus shows how insane it is. And you look at this and you go, what in the world were they thinking? And then you're reminded... This is my heart outside of the grace of God. It was insane, wasn't it? Accuse the righteous one of being led by the evil one? He had been perfectly righteous. He had healed people. He had loved people. He had offered hope to people. And yet they say he's being led and empowered by the enemy. Folks, this is the insanity of a lost spiritual dead heart. It takes the overwhelming evidence and the attributes. There is evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence that Jesus is the incarnate God in front of them. And yet, what do they do? They oppose Him. Beloved, this is what the world does. This is what the lost heart does. It calls what is wrong right and what is right wrong. Then it has an excuse in its thoughts and it justifies itself that now we can eliminate what's right. We can destroy righteousness because after all, righteousness is not righteousness, it's wrong, it's evil. This is our world. Do you not see it, beloved? 
It's everywhere we look, isn't it? So now Jesus peels back the spiritual curtain and reveals the real battle lines. Look at it in verse 25. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Notice Jesus shows the folly of those who oppose him. Ultimately, he exposes the folly of the accuser's logic. Then Jesus reveals his identity based on his revelation in these miracles. First, let's look at it. Jesus exposes the folly of his accusers in verse 25 to 27. Notice he gave two reasons their logic was folly, was foolishness. First, he says, a ruler wouldn't destroy his own kingdom. That makes no sense. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city and house divided against itself will not stand. Jesus' point was his actions were in opposition to Satan. It wouldn't make any sense for Satan to be doing that. It makes no sense. If he was destroying Satan's stronghold by Satan's power, it'd be Satan destroying himself. This is illogical. Jesus was freeing people from rulership of Satan. People, you remember, what happens when he heals the demoniac on the other side of the sea? He's sitting at his feet at peace and saying, I want to follow you. This isn't the way Satan acts. This isn't what Satan does. Jesus was freeing people and healing people. And the people saw it. And they knew it. And this was just a plain and simple, illogical, foolish argument. But again, this is what an unregenerate, unsaved heart does. It's illogical. The second reason their logic was foolish, he says, the Pharisees' own sons We're also accomplishing this task of casting out demons. He says, if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Jesus' point was, if they condemn him as doing this by Satan's power, then they are ultimately also condemning their own sons who are doing the same thing. So in other words, if you're against me and you're saying I'm doing this, then you're against your own sons that are doing the same very thing. So who were the sons? Ultimately, I believe it could be that these were Jesus' disciples. Uh, Again, the disciples were Jewish, and they were those that were with Jesus. 
And we know that John, remember, not John the Baptist, but John and James, the sons of thunder, had some kind of association with the temple guard or the temple priest. Remember, the high priest at the end? Peter was allowed in because of John. Maybe it was that they were that close. Some of the Pharisees were fathers of some of the disciples. Could you imagine if that was how that was working? Your own children are following Jesus and you're like, what are you doing? But even if it wasn't a direct association, they were still the younger generation of those that were the older generation of the Pharisees that were what? Stuck in their religious system. So you can see how it would work. I do think it was the disciples to some degree. They will remember the ones that were casting out demons. He had given them authority to go out and do it. So they were going out and doing the very same things. And they were going to, the twelve disciples were what? Going to sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Very interesting. Possibly he's alluding to his own disciples here. Either way, The second argument is this. If you say this about him, then you will need to condemn all those that are doing this good work for God and honoring God. And those people are going to be your judge in the end. They're going to show that what you thought and what you said was totally wrong. So after showing the illogical deduction of the Pharisees, Jesus says what the miracles did reveal. What did they reveal? Jesus reveals his identity again based on the revelation. In verse 28 and 29 it states, but, but, very important, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We've heard that phrase before, haven't we? Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless... He first binds the strong man, and there, then he will plunder his house. By the way, who's the strong man, or who's the who's the one that enters the property to take off the strong man? The strong man, Satan. Jesus is he's showing the comparison. He's showing that he's the one that has all the power to go in and take it, bind, and do whatever he pleases, because he's the one that's in sovereign control. He's showing that his identity is he is the Son of God. If I do this by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come. I'm the king and I'm here. If I'm doing this, the kingdom has come. If Jesus did this because of God's powerful influence in him, then God's king is in their midst and they should be afraid and turn to him. Jesus then makes this allusion to how he has come and is now destroying Satan's house. He is breaking down barriers and he is saving the lost out of Satan's domain. Jesus in this whole section is doing what? Ultimately, he's saying, I am the one. I am the king of Israel. I am the Messiah for Israel. I, my works testify about me. I am the one. Now, what blows my mind about this is how merciful it is. How gracious it is. Why? 
I want you to think for a second. Put yourself in his place for just a second. Just a... They just said that what you're doing is by the power of Satan. Satan is at work in you. <laughs> How many of you, if you were put in a spot where you were accused and they said to you, you are doing works by Satan, you'd be, you'd be like, I think I'm going to give you a little bit of hope here. I'm going to give you some good news. I'm going to show that your logic is false and it's folly. And I'm going to give you some great hope. I'm here. How many of you would do that? None of us, right? None of us would do it. I wouldn't do it. I don't know about you, but that's the time to pull out the brass knuckles. If I was a sovereign and you just called me my enemy, it'd be like, wouldn't it be easy? Okay, these guys need to stop breathing now. Done. Wouldn't it be easy to do that? How many of you think this way? This is the way we would think, right? Instead, Jesus says, listen, your logic is all messed up. And I'm in your midst. That's grace. Religious elites hated him. But Jesus keeps giving them overwhelming evidence that he was the Lord. Keeps doing it. Keeps showing himself. Keeps showing himself. He was who they should have submitted to and followed. But they didn't. So Jesus continued his discourse by drawing the figurative line in the sand. And he says the words in 1230. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Here it is. It's really another gospel call, isn't it? It's another one of him saying, come to me, come to me, come to me, believe in me, turn to me, be with me. Otherwise, your end is destruction. We look at these words and we say, man, he sure is divisive. Yes, he is. But in a very gracious way, isn't he? He says, in effect, be with me. Or you will be scattered. There's really only two sides in the great spiritual war, isn't it? Those with God and those who are enemies of God. This was an exhortation to the crowd too. You can't be on the fence with Jesus. Do you hear me, beloved? The crowd was there too. And they said, is this possibly the Son of God? And Jesus says in effect, yes I am. Follow me. This was an exhortation to them. You can't be on the fence. 
You're either with me or you are against me. You are either with the Spirit of God and the Son of God or you are an enemy of God. Jesus was exposing the Pharisees and exhorting the crowd to respond in faith to Him. By the way, the same line is drawn today. You either embrace and follow Jesus or you are an enemy of Him and you will face His judgment. Is there any common ground between religions? Absolutely none. You're either with Jesus or you are against Jesus. I don't care what religion it is. I don't care how good you think you are. You're either with Jesus or you are against Jesus. The line is very clear. For the record, this is not where the world draws its lines. It doesn't draw its lines there. In fact, the enemy has blinded people's minds so much that they're constantly drawing different lines and dividing people and fighting against each other. Do you understand that the enemy is at work when you see a fight? (laughs) Do you see... Do you understand that he is constantly leading by destruction and chaos? That's how Satan does things. He leads by hatred and jealousy. He manipulates people with their sin nature. As strange as it sounds, he pits people against each other who are on the same side. I have been, there have been times I've been watching the news. I have to admit, I don't watch the news a lot now because I just can't stand it. But I'm sitting here watching and I'm like, okay, this guy just said a biblical truth, a moral thing that this is, you're on this side, but he hates God and he's an unbeliever. So you look at that and go, how do I reconcile this? And the enemy is just pitting everybody against, everybody's mad at everybody, isn't it? We're all a bunch of haters. Lack of That's not a good term. Not trying to be political, but it's the facts, isn't it? When in fact, there are really only two sides in all the battles that really matters. And it's either you're with Jesus or you're against Jesus. And yet we're all trapped in and stuck in this battle and we end up fighting each other. When we might even be on the same team. What in the world are we doing? Why? I think the answer is, is because we're driven by our pride and our jealousy and our sin nature much more than we are focused on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're off our focus. Our attention's not on Him. Our allegiance is not focused on Him. It's on what? Ourselves. So Satan manipulates us and makes us fight against ourselves. How does he do this? He motivates and influences people by their sin nature. When people are mad at each other, this pleases Satan. He just wants people to fight. But this isn't how Jesus is. Jesus is humble and gentle and kind, and he calls his people to take his yoke. And walk with him. The real line is with Christ or against Christ. 
So the natural question for all of us in the room is this. Real quick, and I'm almost done. Which side are you on? Are you with Christ or against Him? You have heard the truth of who He is in this message. The Word of God reveals it very clearly. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Who are you with? Are you with Christ or against Him? If you're with Christ, you recognize that you're a sinner in total need of Him and Him alone. You don't see any righteousness in and of yourself. You recognize, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And you acknowledge Him as Lord, not yourself. Who are you with? Warning. Don't take this revelation of God lightly. God's Word says... Jesus is who you should be aligned with. No one else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being merciful to us again today. Showing us that Christ is our hope. He is our only one. The only one that we should follow and submit to and honor and glorify. We pray today that if there is someone in here that is serving themselves that they are their own God or they have made up a God in their own mind that is not the God of the Bible, God, we pray that you will grant repentance to them today, that they will turn from their sin and they will trust in Jesus Christ alone. For it is only by his death, burial, and resurrection that we can stand before you. It is only through Jesus that we can come to you, Father. And for us in the room that have been divided from our allegiance to you and have fallen, fallen victim to our own self-righteousness and our own pride. God, have mercy on us. Please have mercy on us. Help us, Lord, to keep our attention on you, to make the main thing the main thing, which is you are the main thing. May you be honored in all that we say and do today, tomorrow, the rest of this week for your glory, for you alone are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing.